This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Richard Thaler is a Charles R. Walgreen Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He's also the director of the Center for Decision Research and is the co-director of the Behavioral Economics Project at the National Bureau of Economics Research. He's co-authored or edited six books, including the global bestseller Nudge in 2008. And I'm very excited to talk with Richard today about his most recent book out earlier this year entitled Misbehaving, The Making of Behavioral Economics. First, Dick, many thanks for taking the time to talk with me and share your insights with our audience at Knowledge at Wharton today. Thanks, Katie. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for saying that. Um, I want to start with a topic we actually chatted about recently. When we chatted recently, you told me that the book you originally pitched when you began the journey of writing this in no way resembled the book you eventually wrote. I wanted to ask you to tell our audience about the book you originally pitched and how and why it morphed into misbehaving. So I should say I have an agent, John Brockman, who is an agent to many academic authors like uh, Dan Gilbert and Steven Pinker, and he's very good at conning academics into writing books. And so he he pulled his trick on me. And the book I was intending to write, the title was Snags, and the idea was it was stuff we would trip on. And I kind of thought of it as a prequel to Nudge, uh, using my George Lucas strategy of writing things backwards. And um, the problem I had was I worked on it off and on for a couple of years, and the book had no spine. It had no organizing principle. So uh, unlike Nudge, which had really two core principles, one was libertarian paternalism, and the other was choice architecture, and those kind of held the book together. Um, Snags just was a collection of things that I found interesting. And um, so I stumbled around for a while, and then I consulted with some of my friends who are professional writers like Michael Lewis, and he encouraged me to try to write the book in the way I did, which is structured as more of a memoir. Um, But it's just a sneaky way of talking about behavioral economics and telling a lot of stories. Well, I think it works beautifully. I'm glad that that you got Michael Lewis's great input. Um, One of the things I wanted to also ask you about is what you think the most important lessons are for business readers, who will probably be main portion of our audience for this broadcast and for this piece from misbehaving and from the field of behavioral economics in general? Well, so let me start with uh, a take on the book that may be uh, more of a take from the subtext than the text, which is the book is really a story about disruption. So, you know, I had an idea 40 years ago that there might be another way of doing economics. And it was a very subversive idea. And I had to try and figure out a way to get tradition-bound economists to take my ideas seriously and then to corrupt 
young people like you into uh, carrying the flag. And I think lots of businesses are in the situation I was in 40 years ago. And um, it's not that I have a recipe, but I think it's always good to read about somebody's struggles and uh, the mistakes they made along the way and some of the successes and why and where. But, of course, what the book is really about is the field of behavioral economics and the evidence that supports it. And, you know, I use the same terms that I used in Nudge, which is uh, humans and econs. And the idea is that standard economics has this mythical creature, homo economicus, uh, that I call an econ for short. And nobody's ever met an econ. Even economists aren't econs. So these econs are super smart, have no emotions, no self-control problems. They go to the gym exactly the right amount of times. They drink exactly the right quantities and um, never binge on chocolate or uh, booze and uh, save exactly the right amount for retirement and so forth and so on. They're also complete jerks. They would never leave a tip at a restaurant they don't intend to go back to. So, um, you know, those people are fictional creatures. And I wanted economics to be about real people. And uh, the lesson for businesses is um, you're dealing with real people. Uh, Those are your customers. Those are your employees, those are your bosses, and the better you understand how real people tick, the more successful you will be able to accomplish your goals. It's a great takeaway, and uh, I think I think it comes through very clearly in the book, which I, by the way, really enjoyed. Thank you. You touched uh, in your answer, at the beginning of your answer, on something else I wanted to ask you about, which is the fact that this book is actually really the story of successfully changing the way a lot of very smart, confident, stubborn people, traditional economists, see the world. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts based on that uh, about some of the most important transferable lessons you've learned about how to convince colleagues that they're missing something and need to change their views. Well, you know, the truth is that I don't think I've changed anybody's mind. Uh, Or if so, it's a very small number of people. And even the people who've changed their minds won't admit they've changed their minds. Uh, As I alluded to earlier, my, my strategy has been to try to, uh, I sometimes say corrupt the youth, um, to get young people interested in the field who don't have a vested interest in the way things have always been done. And I think there's a reason why startups, especially disruptive startups uh, like Google or Amazon or Uber, are full of young people. Um, and that's because young people are not as wedded to the old-fashioned ways of doing things. Um, And so I I think, um, in some ways, I succeeded by not 
trying to change everybody's minds, but um, by recruiting others to help build up a body of evidence. But the second answer would be, um, in the end, the only thing that convinces anybody is data. So there were lots of Lots of excuses economists made for continuing with their ways. Uh, my friend Matthew Rabin sometimes refers to these as explainations, uh, which is a great line. And, um, you know, they would say, well, okay, people make these mistakes in the lab, but if you raise the stakes, then everything is going to be fine. And then, you know, we're still emerging from a crisis that was caused by essentially everybody making mistakes about mortgages, at least. Lenders, borrowers, uh, people who were securitizing loans. So, um, you know, high stakes doesn't make people smart. Uh, If there's one important lesson from behavioral economics, it's that. So people are just uh, make just as many stakes when the uh, sorry people make just as many mistakes when the stakes go up maybe more but that leads me to my next question beautifully as well which is actually uh the the end of the book you spend a little bit of time talking about where behavioral economics has had the biggest impact and why you think that is and i was particularly interested to learn that you felt behavioral economics has had the biggest impact on finance where the stakes are extremely high and I was wondering if you could explain to our audience why you think that's the case. Well, there, I think the reason is that finance has a combination of two things that made the debate um, more interesting and uh, more focal. One is fantastic data. So we have daily prices on stocks going back to 1926 in the U.S. and in other countries around the world. Uh, And we have theories that make precise predictions. And many of those predictions turned out to be false. So it was possible to, to generate studies that just were right in your face you say the following thing cannot happen, and it happened. And um, so I think in the academic field of finance, um, I think that's that's why the field succeeded. There's another part of finance where the field has had a big impact, and uh, that's in the design of retirement savings plans, like 401k plans. And here, it was basically taking the principles of behavioral economics that we're dealing with humans and then making, using what my friend Danny Kahneman calls first grade psychology um, to improve the plans to incorporate things like automatic enrollment or what I call save more tomorrow, which is giving people the opportunity to commit themselves now to saving more later, uh, like when they get an next raise, and then defaulting people into sensible investment plans. So just making the 
you know, my mantra is if you want to help people, make it easy. And I think we've made a lot of progress in 401k plans on making them safe for humans. Great. So I posted a call for questions to ask during this interview on Twitter, where you're very active. And by the way, I hope our audience will become followers of yours on Twitter. And I got lots of great suggestions. And one was actually a repeat of a question that your friend, Danny Kahneman, Nobel laureate, behavioral economist, um, answered recently during an interview. He was asked, what's the behavioral bias or reliable error made by decision makers that you would remove if you had a magic wand? And Danny answered, overconfidence. And his answer was widely discussed in the Twitter sphere, the blogosphere, etc. So the question that I was asked to ask you is the same one, what your answer would be. What bias would you remove if you had a magic wand? You know, it's never a good idea to disagree with Danny. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I, I, I think that would also be at the top of my list. And... Um, Let's let's add some related biases that contribute to overconfidence, like the confirmation bias. So one of the reasons we're overconfident is that we actively seek evidence that supports our views, and that that's that's true of everybody. That's part of human nature. So that's one reason we're overconfident is we're out there looking for support that we're right, and we rarely go out of our way to seek evidence that would contradict us. And so, you know, if people want to make a New Year's resolution, it should be to test their their strong beliefs by uh, asking what would convince them that they were wrong and then looking around and seeing whether they might find some evidence for that. Um the other one would be uh, hindsight bias, a notion that was um, um, first introduced by Baruch Fischoff, who was a graduate student of Kahneman and Tversky. And hindsight bias is the fact that after the fact, we all think things were obvious. So now if you ask people, what did they think 10 years ago? was the prospect that we would have an African-American president before we'd have a woman president. Uh, people say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that could have happened. All, all you needed was the right guy to come along at the right time. Or some people, of course, will say the wrong guy. But in any case, um, now, in in truth, no one thought that back then. And um, so the the evidence for hindsight bias is overwhelming. And this has huge managerial implications because uh, when uh, managers evaluate the decisions of their employees, they do so with hindsight. So some project failed, and after the fact, it's obvious why it failed, and it's obvious that the employee should have thought of it, whereas before the fact, it wasn't obvious to anybody Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it. So the advice I always give my students in dealing with hindsight bias is before big decisions, get everybody to write stuff down, and including the boss, 
and agree on what the what the criteria are for good and bad decisions and that will help at least a little bit after the fact when things blow up um we'll have it on record that actually nobody anticipated the fact that our competitor was going to introduce a better version of our great idea two months before the launch, and we had no way of knowing that was going to happen. Those are great answers, and I suspect they will generate lots of conversation when this posts, just like Danny's answer. Um, We're almost out of time, so let me ask you just one closing question, and that's for members of the audience who are interested in learning even more about behavioral economics than you've shared in this wonderful book. What advice would you offer to them? Are there other books you would recommend, MOOCs or TED Talks you would suggest, blogs, lists they should consider following, etc.? Well, of course, Danny's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is required reading. And uh, I think is a very nice compliment to misbehaving and nudge. Um, and, you know, it's you know, it's very easy to dig in. Um, Misbehaving as a very complete bibliography um, that it it has so because I had two extremely competent graduate students working on it. And um, on any topic I talk about, there's lots of further reading that one can do. The other thing I should say is there's uh, a journal that the American Economic Association publishes called the Journal of Economic Perspectives, and it's aimed not quite at a lay audience, but um, I'd say it's accessible to anybody who's had a few economics courses in school, Um, and it's available free on the AEA website. And if you want to learn about almost any topic in economics, be it behavioral or otherwise, um, that's a great place to start. That's wonderful. I'm sure that'll give our audience lots to do. And I should have mentioned at the beginning when I was listing all of your credentials that you're this year's president of the American Economics Association. So uh, I'm glad you gave a little plug to their website and their perspectives journal for that reason as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm proud of the fact that we make that journal available free to everybody. It's a great service, and it's a great journal. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, and uh, I will let you get back to the many exciting things you're working on, and hope we'll get to talk again soon. Thanks, Dick. Uh, me too, Katie. Thanks a lot. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.